the um, weight control registry is the largest uh, study of successful dieters. It's over 10,000 people now participating. And they've lost over 66 pounds on average and kept it off for more than six years. And they've looked at the kinds of behaviors that allowed them to lose weight and keep it off. Uh, number one was 90, 98% of them went on a diet. So they had a plan. A plan is better than no plan. So the idea that you can just do some sort of intuitive eating program or just wing it or, or what have you, it's not consistent with success. You, you do need to have some sort of plan in order to make a plan. Uh, you probably have to have a little bit of knowledge, in which case uh, having a coach is, you know, is a great idea. Um, and I think number two on the list was 78% of them, uh, over 90% of them uh, added some form of exercise. And the number one exercise was, uh, was walking. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't some brutal, crushing workout. It was, it was walking. And I know we like to recommend weight training, uh, uh, but that doesn't have to be brutal. Doesn't have to be crushing. You don't have to get your heart rate up to 400 beats a minute and sweat a pool of, uh, of sweat out and go home and, and crash on the couch all day. Uh, weight training is, is a fantastic alternative that can actually provide some satiety benefits, retain lean muscle tissue while you're dieting, uh, you know, provide the, the sink for glucose, your blood sugars improve, just so many, so many different things, improve longevity as a result. Uh, so obviously we're going to promote weight training probably as, as the as the lead exercise, if you had to put them in order, if you couldn't do everything, because, you know, we have limited time and limited physical capacity, you know, what I call physical capital. If you got a job and kids and places to go and people to see, um, there's only so much time you have left to devote to any kind of exercise activity. And you and I both recommend that if, if time is restrained, that, that the weightlifting would be the priority. Be far and above would be number one. It helps improve cardiovascular fitness. If you're lifting weights correctly and getting to within, you know, an, an adequate stimulus for results, you're going to be obviously elevating your heart rate a bit. And, uh, you know, obviously um, training consistently enough to get results, you're going to do that at least twice a week. And that, that could be sufficient. And you could do that in probably 30 minutes twice a week. Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturate, creator of pro-metabolic food supplements and seriously saturated skincare. And I'm so pumped to have big Stan Effedine back on the podcast again today. So we had such great feedback from his previous podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that one with uh, Craig. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's the world's strongest bodybuilder and creator of The Vertical Diet, which is a very similar nutrition approach uh, to ours. And he's just a super nice, super knowledgeable guy. So in this episode... I guess we get back to basics and we talk about, I guess, the nine most important or our nine top tips for losing weight um, in a healthy and sustainable way. So I think, you know, if you followed me for a while and I used to be the same, you know, I was majoring in the minors and doing all of the silly diets and focusing on the supplements. And, you know, when I met Craig and when I met Emma, and I learned more about nutrition and food and strength training and daily movement and sun and sleep. And I focused on these basic things and did them consistently. 
that was when I got the best results. And it's not quick and it's not sexy, but it is sustainable. Um, and, you know, once you get there and you reach your desired body composition or goal weight, you're going to look a lot better because you're going to have more muscle and you're going to be able to eat more food and you're going to feel great. So this is a super practical uh, episode and I'm sure you'll love it as much as I did. And as always, uh, please take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D. And each month I pick someone who shared and they win a tub of Saturay premium collagen valued at $79. And we'd also love it if you rated and reviewed the podcast. So you can do that as many times as as you, as you like. So I hope you enjoy this uh, episode and let's get into it. Hi, Stan. Welcome back to the podcast. Big Stan Effedine is back again. We had so much great feedback from his um, uh, first podcast that I thought I'd get him back on and I... Craig's not here today to do his best Stan impersonation and Stan's actually <laughs> discontinued the cooler. So I was like, oh, he can't do the cooler thing anymore. Yeah, I'll have to do my own impression today. Let's see how I do. Thank you for having me back on. I appreciate it. Oh, it's so good. So go, Stan. Do this. Do Stan. Do the Stan. <laughs> yeah, well, I can do uh, Rhino here, the world's strongest pro bodybuilder. I can start with that. Yeah, that's uh, good. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, uh, you know, these days I, I just look back reflectively and I say to myself, I was kind of a professional dieter all my life mm. for more than 30 years since 1988, when I first stepped on stage as a bodybuilder uh, competing, uh, I've gained and lost well over a thousand pounds, albeit intentionally bulking up as big and strong as I could get to compete in powerlifting and then dieting down and be just as shredded and ripped as I could to compete as an IFBB pro bodybuilder. And so I did that throughout my career back and forth every year. And I, I learned a lot of lessons along the way. And so now when I, uh, I get a whole assortment of clients, whether they're dieting or whether they're bulking or uh, obviously athletes as well, uh, I feel like I've experienced just about every possible scenario that someone could throw at me. And uh, I, I can tell them from experience. And of course, with my knowledge from studying exercise science at the University of Oregon and uh, working with great coaches and being a coach and collaborating with some of the, uh, I think some of the greatest um, athletes and uh, academic professionals in the industry, uh, you know, and then also communicating with my own clients over the years, you know, certainly thousands of them by now who send me DMs and I exchange, uh, you know, their, uh, their question and my answer and their response and their, you know, subsequent follow-up with uh, whether or not it worked. I, I just feel like I've heard it all. And uh, I think it's kind of boils down to just a few, what should be really kind of common sense, simple things that we should apply, but there's so much noise out there that we often get distracted and, and get taken away from what works and start chasing uh, the, what I call shiny objects, you know, things, quick fixes and things that, that people see on the internet. What about this? So I call them the whatabouts. You know, what about, what about, what about? <laughs> and I, I feel like I spend 95% of my time just dispelling myths. And so today probably won't be, uh, uh, we probably won't cover anything that you, they haven't heard before, but maybe we can uh, put it into context and, and let them appreciate the importance of it and the priority of it, put things mm -hmm. kind of in a, a hierarchy of what mm. to focus on most and what not to get distracted with that probably won't yield you any benefit or isn't meaningful. 
saved mm. you some money along the way too. So that was kind of why I thought this was a great topic uh, that you and I came up with today. Let's just uh, let people know what works. And then maybe yeah. while we're talking through it, we can, we'll touch on a few things that are probably just distractions and myths. <laughs> no, perfect. Cause Stan, most of the women that follow me or join our program, usually in their forties and fifties done 10 plus years of, you know, restrictive dieting, tried every diet under the sun, you know, they're stuck in this cycle of the, the restrict and then the binge and they ended up with all of these um, health issues. So like poor sleep, you know, a lot of menopausal, perimenopausal symptoms, you know, constipation, low energy, low sex drive, some people's hair are falling out. And, yeah. you know, they want to achieve, I guess, and I say toned and athletic because that's what they always say to me, like, Kitty, I just, I want to look toned. Um, and they want to lose weight and be able to sustain it, but actually feel good. So, yeah, we just thought we'd, and, you know, like Stan said, he's the world's strongest uh, bodybuilder. So <laughs> he knows a thing or two uh, about, you know, healthy, sustainable weight loss. And we're talking about, you know, not dumb shit, stop doing dumb shit because, you know, you can look good and feel good as well. Hey, Stan, that's what we were talking about before. Like I think a lot of women when they talk to me and this was like I used to be. So, you know, like when we talk about what, because I was asked them, what would feel like a good weight for you? And I ask them this because sometimes they tell me unrealistic things given their height, but most of them sort of have a range, you know, obviously we want to look at body composition, but a lot of them are like, Oh, I'd never imagine that I could get to that sort of healthy weight, healthy body fat without doing dumb things. And like you say, it's not to you and I, it seems, I mean, it seems simple to me now, but it really is doing those basic things consistently over a long period of time. And then like creating those habits and lifestyle changes so that, you know, I found this nine years ago and I'm still, doing it now and I think that I'm in probably better shape now in my 40s than I was in my 20s and I'm much healthier and so one of the things we love is about Stan is he's creator of the vertical diet so it's pretty much similar nutrition approaches to what we um you know prescribe I guess you know he loves the old carrot salad and oranges every time I eat my orange Stan I think of you um <laughs> so we're very aligned on our nutrition uh approach so yeah I don't know where should we start Stan what what, what do you think Number one. Well, I mean, we should probably agree on on the big rocks first, things mm-hmm. that people need to understand and uh, that often folks claim aren't true. Uh, first and foremost, it is an energy balance equation. I yeah. think that people should, should get comfortable with the fact that if you want to lose weight, you have to create the calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into a myriad of ways that you can do that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that you need to create a calorie deficit. And it's what we discussed last time as being the energy balance equation. The total daily energy intake is everything that you eat or drink, you know, anything with calories that you consume. That counts on the intake side. And then as far as energy expenditure, uh, there's a number of different ways that you burn calories every day. Uh, we know there's the basal metabolic rate, which is the vast majority of the calories you burn, probably 70% of them. You've got your uh, non-exercise activity. That's just moving around throughout the day, even fidgeting and tapping your toe at your desk and blinking and uh, certainly all the activities that you do throughout the day, going to the grocery store and cooking and vacuuming. That's your non-exercise activity. And then you've got your thermic effect of food. And that's every, all the food you eat, you burn some calories metabolizing that food. Protein burns more calories than the others. And so we spend a lot of time 
trying to optimize that, but it's not significant to be honest. Everybody has to eat. If you want to remain a calorie deficit, you got to eat a little less. You're going to burn a little less in that department, but it's not terribly significant. And then the smallest portion of calories that you burn in a day is your exercise activity. And I think that's where people over-focus. They get into a weight loss program and they think they need to go out and crush themselves and start jogging five miles a day, and, you know, taking up a CrossFit class and, and coming home, you know, crippled and, and what have you. And, and they, you know, they, they tend to rank a personal trainer's uh, quality as to whether or not they were exhausted and sweat and crawled out of the gym. And it really has nothing to do with, uh, you know, long-term weight loss and weight loss maintenance. I always say that more exercise does not equal more weight loss. So on the energy expenditure side, we actually, a lot of us uh, set too high of an expectation or too high of a value on that. And we work too hard and we end up suffering from what's called compensation. We go home because we're, we're beat up and we sit more and we eat more. And now you've started to counteract uh, the effects of your training which probably burned a lot fewer calories than what you may have uh, assumed. And you overconsume, you know, on the energy intake side as a result of your being hungry uh, and being tired and being bored and, and sitting around because you can't get up and move because you're too tired. Um, so I don't need to go too deep into those things, but I just want people to appreciate that. Yes. At the end of the day, it is a calorie equation. Uh, you know, I've said many times that uh, people want to lose weight. They need to, uh, eat less and move more. And that's kind of insulting to some folks, but it's accurate. It's what I call truthful, but it's not useful. You know, that's like saying, Hey, if, if you want to have more money, if you don't want to be broke, then you need to save more and spend less. Yeah. It's truthful, but it's not useful. Mm. And so what we're going to try and talk about today is what's useful. What are some uh, things that you can focus on that actually provide you uh, or allow you to stay in that calorie deficit? Because, uh, losing weight is actually quite easy. Most people who go on a diet, they lose weight initially on any diet, even the McDonald's diet. We <laughs> talked about the professor who had his students put him on an 1,850 calorie a day diet at McDonald's uh, and he walked 40 minutes a day and he lost like 30 pounds and all of his blood markers improved. His blood pressure, his blood sugars, his lipids all improved because 95% of health benefits uh, are realized simply from the weight loss itself, irrespective of the diet. And that's not to say that we're going to recommend the McDonald's diet for a host of reasons that we'll discuss today. Uh, but having said that, it, it, you can lose weight on any calorie deficit, uh, and it will result in, at least initially, a significant improvement in your metabolic markers. As mentioned, your blood work for your lipids and blood pressure and blood sugars. Now, whether or not that's sustainable long-term is, is where the, the, the real rubber meets the road. And what we call long-term weight loss maintenance. That's what we want to focus on because losing the weight, you know, a lot of your dieters over the years have lost a lot of weight, mm -hmm. uh, but gained it back and they go on this roller coaster. And so we should probably just go down a list of things that, uh, that they should focus on. Maybe it probably won't be in or necessarily in order of importance because I didn't bother to, uh, to kind of, go through that. But I, I think that, you know, at least initially, what we understand is that- Can I just jump in, Steg, quickly, just before we start? I just sure, wanted to, because sure. I know what women who will be listening to this will be thinking, because I talk to them every day. And I just want to give some examples. So like, um, 
this is two examples of women that joined our program. So when they got on the calls to me, they're like, this is the ladies that are working directly with um, Craig, uh, you know, Kitty, I was, before I joined the program, I was eating 1600 calories and I was gaining weight. Now Craig's got me on just under in the 16 weeks. I think she was just eating just under 2000 calories and she lost like five kilos or something. Like she wasn't huge. She was like 75 kilos. And I said, well, it's, it's not possible because you're eating more. You obviously weren't tracking accurately because you kind of increased your food. And then when I dug a bit deeper with her, she's like, yeah, you're right. I wasn't, you know, like I'd put some things in my fitness pound then I wouldn't weigh things. And then I'd have some drinks on the weekend. Um, another lady that I spoke to has Hashimoto. She joined our program, Hashimoto's. She's like, I just, I can't lose weight. You know, I'm eating 1600 calories. You know, I've got all these health issues. So the first thing that Craig gets and does is he works out like he's got this, I'm sure like you do, based on their activity and lean mass and whatever else, he works out what he believes are their maintenance calories and he tests it for two weeks and sees what, sees, sees what happens. And so he puts her on, I think, just under 2,000 calories. And instantly, like, because, you know, he sets her up. He's like, I want you to eat the same thing every day so we can get into a good routine. So she's set up the meals. She's five, six meals a day, you know, eating all the foods we suggest. She's like, oh, my God, I'm feeling so much better. And already she's losing weight. So I feel like so many women, when they think that they're eating low calories, either they're one, not tracking accurately, or they restrict and then they binge, which is exactly what I did. So you might eat 1200 calories for a couple of days and then you end up binge eating. You know, you're probably not eating enough protein. So I think there's this misconception that like, cause it's Stan, let me ask you this. Is it impossible for someone to be a hundred kilos and eating 1200 calories consistently. Like if we tape their mouth shut at 1200 calories and they could only eat 1200 calories, would it be possible for them to maintain hundred kilos? If no. they're fat, if they're holding a lot of body fat, it's not possible, is it? It'd be very unlikely. Yeah. yeah. This, and that kind of feeds into this concept of wrecking your metabolism or, or whatever term that people have used for that over the years. Uh, it, it's impossible you hit the nail on the head 99% of the time. And I hate having these conversations because you're essentially blaming the victim. You know, you're telling your client, look, you're, you're at war with yourself here. And, you know, don't let me insult you along the way, but I'll tell you what commonly occurs in the vast majority of cases when somebody's not losing weight, they are generally overeating. And that can happen for a number of reasons. Like you mentioned, they, they underestimate portion sizes. They can't account for hidden calories. Generally, that's oils, uh, you know, whatever the food's cooked in that you can't see, mm. uh, you know, whether your steak is cooked in a, a pool of, of um, seed oil at the restaurant or uh, your salad that is vinegar and oil has a lot more oil because just one tablespoon of oil is, uh, what is that? It's, it's an excess of 200 calories. Um, I think it's 260 calories mm. for a tablespoon of oil, if I understand correctly. Um, but it's significant. So bites, sips, licks, snacks, uh, underestimating calories, you know, even at restaurants, uh, I was going to pull up a, a study here. I had put a couple off to the side here to look at, but, um, restaurants underestimate calories by as much as a hundred percent and pretty consistently between 30 to 50%. And so what you think you're getting there, you're, you're getting significantly more at restaurants, uh, and then, you know, obviously the highly palatable foods, there's plenty of studies that suggest that eating ad libitum or just at will, uh, you'll consume as much as 500 calories a day more than someone who eats, uh, 
you know, a whole food diet as opposed to a highly processed, mm. um, ultra palatable food diet. So there's a whole lot of pitfalls and traps along the way, but it's exactly like you described people will estimate their intake to be at 1600 and it will be more likely be in the low two thousands. Mm. And, uh, sometimes that takes some education. And I know that there's a lot of influencers out there that like, you know, you don't have to count calories and no, you don't. There's some, there's some methods that we can utilize that, that may prevent you from having to count all your calories, but that doesn't mean that calories don't count. And that's important to remember that just cause you're not counting doesn't mean that, uh, that it's an all-you-can-eat diet, and somehow you're going to lose weight because you chose one of these often promoted, um, uh, what would you call them? Uh, I had a word for that. It's, uh, let's just say keto, mm-hmm. intermittent fasting, uh, diet strategies is what I refer to them as. And it's perfectly reasonable. Those are paths that some people find to be sustainable and enjoyable. And they shouldn't be discouraged from using any of those. Uh, they're not any better than continuous calorie restriction. They're not any better than each other. Um, there are some pitfalls potentially along the way. Um, a lot of people view them as short-term solutions. And they're looking at this thing in terms of a finish line rather than a marathon. You know, they're going for the sprint. And, uh, you know, we encourage, and I heard you use the word lifestyle. It needs to be simple, sensible, and sustainable. And if you're going to choose a quote-unquote diet to go on short-term to lose a, you know, five or ten pounds to meet a particular goal, whether it's to get in a certain dress or to go on vacation, the likelihood you're going to regain that is pretty significant because you haven't learned the skills necessary, uh, nor have you created uh, a lifestyle plan that's sustainable for you such that you won't go off the diet, go back to your old patterns, continue to overeat, and gain all the weight back. And so I think there does have to be a, a learning period where people should at least understand, you know, just like, you know, the value of a quarter is compared to a dollar is compared to a 10 or a hundred. You need to know the value of certain foods on your plate, or you'll have just, you just have no way of navigating whether or not you're over or under eating. And some of those foods, it's not just calories, but there's satiety benefits and a host of other things that we can dive into. But um, that, that'll be kind of what we'll try and touch on today is, what are some tools and techniques that you can utilize to comply with your diet long-term? I think, you know, like a lot of women who, I think we talked about this before in the other podcasts, like I just always associated tracking with restriction because I was always trying to eat 1200 calories and cut carbs and do stupid shit. But once I met Emma and Craig and, you know, it was more about optimization and, you know, changing my body composition and feel, and I just realized I could eat so much more and get the results that I wanted. Um, And I think it's really empowering and it's having the knowledge and tools. Like I interviewed this lady who did our program when we very first launched it, like three or four years ago, and she's been out of it now. She did it for 12 months, tracked religiously for 12 months, trained four days a week. She's in her fifties, got to her body composition goals and she's sustained it now three years later. And she's actually just because of her lifestyle, she only trains two days a week full body, but she eats, she says between 2000 to two and a half thousand calories. She's toned, she's no menopausal symptoms. And she said, the religious tracking taught me what I needed to do and gave me the skills and knowledge. And I have all this freedom around food now and it doesn't, you know, um, I don't feel restricted. So I think it's like, you know, you got to ask yourself, like, why don't I want to track? Why don't get out of the emotion and into the data? And I just think it's so empowering having that knowledge because then you realize you're like, well, I never have to eat fucking 1200 calories again. I don't have to do that, that dumb stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, 
you said something very important that it, it, it kind of opened up more opportunity for you. It was less restrictive as a result of having the knowledge so that you wouldn't have to avoid things and label them as good or bad, but just understand that they all provide you different calorie density and potentially different, um, have a different influence on whether or not you'll be more or less hungry. Uh, and then ultimately also in terms of energy. So this has been studied. You said you had a client recently lost weight, kept it off for three years. The um, weight control registry is the largest uh, study of successful dieters. It's over 10,000 people now participating. And they've lost over 66 pounds on average and kept it off for more than six years. And they've looked at the kinds of behaviors that allowed them to lose weight and keep it off. Uh, number one was 90, 98% of them went on a diet. So they had a plan. A plan is better than no plan. So the idea that you can just do some sort of intuitive eating program or just wing it or, or what have you, it's not consistent with success. You, you do need to have some sort of plan and in order to make a plan. Uh, you probably have to have a little bit of knowledge, in which case uh, having a coach is, you know, is a great idea. Um, and I think number two on the list was 78% of them, uh, over 90% of them uh, added some form of exercise. And the number one exercise was, uh, was walking. It, it wasn't some brutal crushing workout. It was, it was walking. And I know we like to recommend weight training, uh, uh, but that doesn't have to be brutal. It doesn't have to be crushing. You don't have to get your heart rate up to 400 beats a minute and sweat a pool of, uh, of sweat out and go home and, and crash on the couch all day. Uh, weight training is, is a fantastic alternative that can actually provide some satiety benefits, retain lean muscle tissue while you're dieting, uh, you know, provide the, the sink for glucose, your blood sugars improve, just so many, so many different things, improve longevity as a result. Uh, so obviously we're going to promote weight training probably as, as the, as the lead exercise. If you had to put them in order, if you couldn't do everything, because, you know, we have limited time and limited physical capacity, you know, what I call physical capital. If you got a job and kids and places to go and people to see, um, there's only so much time you have left to devote to any kind of exercise activity. And you and I both recommend that if, if time is restrained, that, that the weightlifting would be the priority be far and above would be number one. It helps improve cardiovascular fitness. If you're lifting weights correctly and getting to within, you know, an, an adequate stimulus for results, you're going to be obviously elevating your heart rate a bit. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, training consistently enough to get results. You're going to, have to do that at least twice a week. And that, that could be sufficient. And you could do that in probably 30 minutes twice a week and get a, a really good result. And then couple that with just some, uh, some 10 minute walks daily. And you've pretty much just outlined my beginner program for uh, the energy expenditure side of a weight loss diet is take a 10 minute walk after three meals daily and go to the gym twice a week and do a full body workout that, uh, you know, is just in, intended to utilize the science-based principles of hypertrophy, not necessarily intended to, to go in there and, and make you suffer through something unenjoyable. Uh, Cause I always say the best exercise is the one you'll do. And so I'm cautious to start there. And, yeah. I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage anybody from doing anything else. You know, I would want them to do what they enjoyed and would consistently do long-term first but I would encourage them that the, the benefits from weight training are unique and mm -hmm. superior. They give you a bigger return on your investment. So I would at the very least try and incorporate that into uh, any other kind of activity that you enjoyed doing uh, or use it as a, as a, uh, you know, an accessory to it. 
Um, we see that, you know, for improvements in longevity and, and general health as well. So that's about all I prescribe on the energy expenditure side. And the energy expenditure side, to be honest with you, is a very small portion of uh, what gives you the results you want for weight loss. The vast majority of it's on the intake side, like you said, mm-hmm. underestimating calories being the first, uh, the first and most obvious uh, common problem with dieters is they, they just aren't tracking calories accurately. And maybe they don't, just don't have the knowledge uh, yeah. and, and don't understand that even dieticians can be off by 20 to 30%. Labels well, was- can be off by 20%. Restaurants yeah. off by 50%. Our estimating portion control, we're off by 30 plus percent. <laughs> so it's not just them. It's everyone. We're just not very good at tracking calories. Well, that was one quick thing. I know we'll keep moving on to the other because we've talked about the strength training, but one thing that Craig always talks about when um, we're talking about this topic is because I always say like, but there's these people out there that say they're a hundred kilos and they're consistently eating 1200 calories. And he talks about all the metabolic ward studies that have been done. And I said, oh, yeah. to him, I said to him, so you're telling me that there's out of the thousands of metabolic ward studies, not one study has ever put someone in there and put them on 1200 calories and they've maintained their weight. He said, not one. Not one. He said these people, like, they, they basically let them try and do the diet on their own and they come back after a month and some of them have lost a bit of weight, some of them have regained the weight. Then they put them into the metabolic ward where they can't, where they're obviously only fed what they feed them. And when visitors come in, they pat them down. And I think, you know, whatever, how many calories they put them on, 1,600. We're not saying do that, but every single one of them lost weight, he said. Every single one. He said it's, there's never been a metabolic ward study where that's been, that's not happened. A hundred percent. You're absolutely right. And that's not to say that some people don't burn fewer calories than someone else of a similar weight, mm. especially your yo-yo dieters. Those people end up having a bit of a suppressed, you know, a slightly suppressed um, energy expenditure and may have to eat fewer calories than someone of a similar size who had never gained and lost weight consist, you know, over and over mm. again, mm. what we call metabolic adaptation, as you're aware uh, so that's not to say that we all have an even playing field and that, you know, you're kind of, you got your deck of cards, you got to play it. You still have to create a calorie, calorie deficit. No, you might not be able to eat as much as your friend that, you know, is similar size. And that's just kind of, you know, the hand that you're dealt right now. Now you can change that over time. And we would recommend that you would do that with a slow and gradual reverse diet with weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try and increase your metabolism and, and get your uh, and get your body to to add more lean mass, which would burn more calories. So we can we can there's things we can do to repair that, but dieting more doesn't repair it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the challenges. So uh, not everybody has the same the same predisposition, same challenge, and that kind of feeds into what you said about your client who has Hashimoto's, and, and people tend to think that if they have Hashimoto's, which is a range, you know, the the severity of your, of your hypothyroidism is a range. Um, As far as your BMI is concerned, your basal metabolic rate is concerned, your BMR, the number of calories that even severe Hashimoto's will reduce your basal metabolic rate somewhere around 130 a day. And that could be a range from 30 a day to 130 a day. Not everybody who has some hypothyroidism has as severe of a slowing in their basal metabolic rate. So I'm not saying it's, it's nothing, but it's not as significant as your client would, would believe. They would think if they have Hashimoto's that they are unable to lose weight, that, that, you know, at, at any calorie intake. And the truth is, is it's, it, it does put you at a bit of a disadvantage 
the bigger problem with Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism is it makes you tired. And then you stop moving. So it's not your basal metabolic rate necessarily. It's your non-exercise activity thermogenesis that gets impacted a great deal more. Just as I mentioned with uh, compensation from overtraining, you're just going to come home and sit more. And then out of sheer boredom, you're just going to start eating more. Uh, so that is where things like, you know, needing medication and it's for not a host of other processes of the body as well. But in terms of your, your basal metabolic rate, yes, you should, you should get, uh, you know, medical intervention and get sufficient medication so that you can manage your Hashimoto's. Uh, but at the same time, recognize that, that a lot of it comes from just your, your not exercise activity slowing. One of the ways we track that is to use a, a you know, like a walking counter, mm. a step counter. And what you find is, is that if, if you track your steps and you're normally getting 8,000 steps a day, when you go on a diet, your step count starts to gradually reduce 7,000, mm. 6,000, 5,000. As you start losing weight, you start moving less because your body's compensating by uh, restricting your energy expenditure. You'll get a little bit of slowing in your basal metabolic rate uh, a little bit. And that's normal because you weigh less. You'll get a little bit of slowing in your thermic effect of food because you're eating less. And then you'll get some slowing in your non-exercise activity because your body's going to try to defend yourself from starvation. And then, you know, you'll be in there pounding away with exercise activity that also your body compensates for uh, by burning less calories for the same investments in a particular exercise. You walk 4.0 on the treadmill for 30 minutes and um, you may burn, you know, 200 calories uh, initially, but over the course of this diet, your body will start getting better and better at, at economizing that action. And you'll start burning 170, 150, 130 for the same investment in work. And so all those things are kind of working against you. And one of the ways we manage that is to get a step counter and make sure that you don't start decreasing the number of steps that you take a day, try and hold serve there mm. uh, because that, you know, that will be one of the things that you want to manage. Non-exercise activity is one of the areas where you have the most influence over the, the difference between say a sedentary office working individual and somebody that is as a highly active job on their feet all day uh, can be up to 1500, 2000 calories a day. It can be really significant. Um, and generally what happens is people who are burning the 1500 plus calories a day from the highly active jobs, they end up eating more as well. And they may not be able to lose weight either if they're not careful with you know, how much you consume, because it's pretty easy to, to overconsume calories. Mm. I think, Stan, sorry, I just want to interject here quickly, just talk about an example of a client. So one of our coaches, Margie, she joined our program like three or four years ago. She had an autoimmune condition, like an arthritic autoimmune condition, spondo, I can never bloody say it, menopausal symptoms. So anyway, joined the program, did the strength training, ate the food, you know, she didn't really have much weight to lose at all, but you know, her, 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 her autoimmune conditions, she's off all the medication now in remission strength training. She's like 54. So she actually paid for a niece to do our program who has Hashimoto's. Um, her niece worked with us for 12 months. She lost 15 kilos eating 2000 calories a day. So initially with her coach, cause you know, like they're really highly stressed. I think Hashimoto's autoimmune conditions, it's like, it's your system's just so stressed. So her coach just worked with her. They focused on her food first. She pretty much, when I did her interview, she said, Kitty, because she loves this green chicken curry that we have recipe. She I ate that for dinner, like for four months. I ate the same thing. I'm a single mom. I prepped all my food every week, ate 2000 calories. We just started with walking. So they did the steps. 
10,000 steps a day for three or four months. Then when she had lost some weight and was feeling better, they introduced the strength training. She's now off her medication, like eating 2000 calories a day. So I think that like, once you get this tracking down pat, you realize that you can get better results eating so much more food. I think, I feel like that's where, you know, and like you said, she just did the strength training and now she's really focusing on that body recomposition because she's healthy her body's resilient, you know, more resilient to the stress. She can train harder. And she sent me some photos the other day. I think she was like 84 kilos to start with. And now she's like in the, you know, uh, high 60s or something now. And she looks great and she feels good. Um, but so much of that came down to that discipline with the nutrition consistency, the walking, you know, focusing on the sleep and the other things that we will talk about as yeah. well. We don't have a ton of tools in our toolkit, to be honest. <laughs> we've, we've covered a lot of them. Let's just kind of go down them step yeah. by step. So what have we done so far? This. So we've done strength training, d- daily activity. I think too, like you said, with the daily activity, like if you can keep that higher, like 10,000 plus steps a day, you can keep your food higher. So like you burn yeah. and it's not stressful. It's easy, the walking, strength training. What else did we talk about? Um, the tracking, the food, obviously. What about protein yeah. protein intake? Because I feel like that's Let's a big one with women. A hundred percent. That's yeah. kind of the top of our list. Protein, uh, generally women in particular tend to undereat protein. Uh, we tend to eat mostly carbs and processed foods. They're so cheap. They tend to be pretty low in protein. You ever go to one of those buffets, there's not a whole lot of proteins to choose from. There's a lot of mac and cheese and stuffing and those kinds of things, but not a lot of protein to choose from. Protein, um, and I'm going to make a specific recommendation. I'm going to say you should be at or near or in excess of 30% of your total calories as protein for intake. And I think that generally speaking, we're well below that. There was a recent study done comparing the Mediterranean diet to a high protein diet. I just pulled up the study here in the journal of nutrients, a high protein diet is more effective in improving insulin resistance and glycemic variability compared to a Mediterranean diet. This was a crossover controlled inpatient study. Also the diet fits trial, which was out of Stanford. It was a year long and over 600 participants They looked at once you control for calories and protein, meaning you get two groups and you equate for calories and you equate for protein, where they moved carbs and fats was just a matter of personal preference. And some people preferred higher fats and people preferred higher carb. Uh, It didn't seem to matter, which is why keto can certainly work as long as the protein's high enough uh, and the calories don't exceed your your maintenance level and as can a low fat diet can certainly work as long as the, uh, the calories are controlled and you get sufficient protein. Most of the diets comparing historically because keto to uh, a higher carb diet uh, didn't control for protein. Which is, some, which is a really interesting fact because that's what we're talking about right now is that the higher protein keto diets outperform the lower protein, high carb, low fat diets because of protein, because it has a high thermic effect of food for every hundred calories of protein you consume, you only net out about 70 because it's metabolically expensive to digest protein. It also is more satiated. So people were able to eat less overall throughout the diet. If you just look at, again, ad libitum, just at will without necessarily controlling everything so tightly. It's one of the reasons why some people do well on keto is that some people find they're just not hungry and that satiates them. And the, the biggest reason why people fail on diets is because they overeat, they're, they're hungry. That's number one. 
And number two is they get tired, as we mentioned earlier. So those are the two things we want to try and mitigate. And protein helps with both of those things. It helps you both with energy and it helps you with satiety. Uh, it also helps you net out fewer calories because of the thermic effect of food. And one of the big ones is it helps you retain or gain lean muscle mass when paired with a lifting program. And, and that's very important. Eating protein by itself doesn't cause you to build muscle. You do need to have a stimulus. And that burns more calories overall. A more muscular individual is going, to is going to burn more calories as part of their basal metabolic rate. So I lead with protein. That's the, I come right out of the gate and I say, and this is kind of neat because we're not talking about taking things away. We're talking about here's what you need to add to your diet. Let's do a couple numbers. I just scratched some out here on piece of paper because people are like, okay, well, great. I need 30% of my diet and protein. So let's take a 160 pound woman, 73 kilograms, right? Right about there. And they want to get down to say 20% body fat, which would be extraordinary. That's fantastic. And they're currently 30%, which is right on the border of overweight. Obese would be over 35%, right? As the BMI tracks. So you've got an individual that's 30% body fat and they want to lose some body fat and they weigh 73 kilos. So they, they need to lose about 10% uh, body fat. And so we take that 73 kilogram individual and we subtract the 10% fat loss or about seven kilograms uh, from them. And that gives us kind of a lean weight or a goal weight. Mm -hmm. They want to be 140 pounds or 64 kilos. Let's say that's their goal. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of how I calculate protein. I try and give them a certain amount of protein per pound or kilo of body weight. Mm. And I could do that by their current body weight, but if they're carrying a significant amount of excess fat, it's probably a little high. Yeah. So let's do just goal weight. You know, you say you weigh 73 kilos and you want to get down to 64 kilos, then I'm going to take that 64 kilogram uh, individual and I'm going to multiply the protein by at least 1.6 grams per kilogram, at least. Mm. To me, that's a minimum. And uh, interestingly, uh, Professor Stu Phillips was just on with Rhonda Patrick recently, and they had a really great conversation. And Rhonda, you know, has traditionally been, she's a PhD, I think, biochemistry. She's traditionally been kind of a, a lower calorie, um, longevity focused, uh, lots of fasting, lots of concern about mTOR and, you know, too much protein. She really, I think, came a long way throughout that conversation, understanding the importance of longevity and, and the lack of evidence in anything but mice for any potential uh, detrimental effect of protein uh, at higher levels, there isn't any. Uh, protein is, is, is probably the, the most important macronutrient that you could uh, strive to maximize. Uh, and that maximum number is somewhere between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kilogram of body. Mm. That's, I think, what, what we're what kind we of recommending. Use. Yeah, to Particularly if you're working yeah. out. Yeah. And as you get older, it becomes more important to be on the higher end of that. And as you're lifting weights, you know, towards the 2.2 pounds uh, or 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, as you get older, you have you have a little decreased uh, sensitivity to protein, muscle protein synthesis. So you had to eat a little more. Or if you're lifting weights, you, you have a, a stimulus that can uh, allow you to eat more protein. But that's that's kind of a nice number. 1.6 to 2.2. I'm usually low end on purpose. I'm mm. saying if you want to get down to 64 kilograms, that you multiply that by the 1.6, the low end. And so you need about 120 grams of protein a day. Mm. Mm. 
Now, if you're going to eat three meals a day, you need 40 grams of protein per meal. And if you're going to eat four meals a day, you need 30 grams of protein per meal. And the only difference between the two is personal preference. It's just, does your schedule accommodate this? What do you prefer? Uh, what's sustainable for you? You get to choose because there's no difference between the two, to be honest. Mm. Um, maybe for 1% of the population that's competing in sports, you kind of want to get the four meals, but for everyone else, our audience today. Um, so if you like to eat three meals a day, you're going to need 40 grams of protein per meal. Well, I asked a lot of my female clients, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, I had two eggs and a bagel. That's 12 grams of protein. Yeah. Where's yeah. the other 28 grams? That's <laughs> what I'm looking for. I need you to get 28 more grams. And they just look at me blank faced with their eyes wide open because that to them is just, there's just a, a monumental you know, gap there between what they are eating, or maybe it's just that they realize that, that that's you know, a significant shortfall in their diet. Mm. Uh, you get six grams of protein in an egg, you get eight grams of protein in say one cup of milk, mm. um, for those people who can tolerate, you get nine grams of protein and a half cup of Greek yogurt, seven grams of protein for every ounce of meat that beef, chicken, fish, you know, whatever your preference is. So you got to start cobbling together those sources to get your 40 grams, particularly for breakfast, because mm. we know that a higher protein breakfast actually helps satiate you for subsequent meals. And uh, in some of the uh, chrononutrition research suggests that the earlier feedings help uh, decrease or ameliorate postprandial glycemia, which is how much your blood sugar elevates and for how long after a meal in subsequent meals. So your bigger protein breakfast will mean a lower sh uh, blood sugar spike for lunch is mm -hmm. what that means. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, we're getting into the weeds now because I, I just want you to pay attention to total calories and I want you to get sufficient protein. Yeah. And, and I hate even talking about meal timing and all the other stuff because it's really, really inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. If you meet these two, uh, big rocks, calorie yeah. control, protein intake, you're 95% of the way there. <laughs> and none of these other little things that I, that I carry on about because I watch too many <laughs> videos of, of nutrition PhDs chattering on about this stuff is really important to remember. And I probably, you know, I did a seminar once with a friend of mine. He said, Stan, you water the lawn with a fire hose. <laughs> and so <laughs> as I sit here catching myself carry on, I realized that, that the intent of our conversation today was to focus on what matters. And I'm blathering on about postprandial glycemia and meal timing, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but I, I agree with you because I think that women too, like, you know, Craig always says to me, he's like, oh, Kitty, you just make so much progress because you focus on the basics and you just do them well and you do it consistently. Yeah. Like, as an example, like, let's talk about like the meal timing and eating. Like, I try and have obviously, I have carbs before my workout and protein, carbs and protein after my workout, but I don't get so stressed about the exact number. I just make sure I hit the protein goal within the day. I make sure I'm fueling my training so I can perform and I eat all my calories. You know, I, I like to have six meals a day just because I like to eat frequently. And like most of the women in our program seem to do well on four to six, but we say to them, look, take your protein target. Just try and spread it relatively evenly if you can, you yeah. know, so because then we, we can talk about the balancing, like balancing your blood sugar, I think really for a lot of our women helps, but also keeps them full, full, you know, the satiety thing is important and lift yeah. the weight, lift the weight. It's like, I'm not saying that you can't dig down to the detail, but 
do the basics first. Once you've nailed that, then you can get into the more like nuances, right? Of if you're not doing the basics, there's no fucking point. Like this is a perfect example. There was this client, this friend of mine who also has a coaching business. She was talking to us about this client that was like getting so finicky on like the pre and post workout, like meal timing but she wouldn't actually even invest in any more equipment to lift weights. So it's like, you're not even going to fucking build the muscle because you can't even lift progressively heavier weights. Like you're focusing on the wrong shit. You know, you talked about, you got to have the stimulus. So you got no stimulus, but you're focusing on the pre and post. So yeah, like I don't think people should, there are nuances, but maybe if you're an athlete and you're doing everything right to start with, then you can um, focus on that. And the next thing actually, because that's sort of the protein made me think about the next one. So I recently, um, we ended up deciding we're not going to have kids. And so we did a bloody podcast on that. So if anyone wants to listen to it, listen to it. But over the last, the two years when we, the TTC, I put on about five or 6% body fat. And so we're like, well, we're not having kids anymore. So I'm going to get back into training, set myself some training body composition goals. So we just did a mini cut. So it was like five weeks. Well, it was actually yep. four weeks. But then when we increased my calories again, I still continued to drop weight. So it ended up being five weeks. And I averaged the calories out and I ate 2,120 calories over five weeks. And like the body fat just dropped off me. Like the weight just, it was so easy because I hadn't dieted for so long. I had lots of muscle. I did like 15,000 steps a day, you know. Um, but one of the things that I, I sort of changed my meal plan around because I really love orange juice and I know you are a good, you know, yeah, you promote orange juice too. But when I was obviously on the reduced calories, I really tried to focus on like pulling out as much of the liquids as possible. So as an example, instead of orange juice, I drank, I ate oranges, Um, you know, and we feel like, and talk about this, that some of our clients, like when they come to us, they find this like pro-metabolic eating. That's what sort of we call it. And we look at their diet plans. We're like, oh, you're drinking so much orange juice. You're not eating enough protein. Like you're not eating enough like starchy carbs, like potatoes. You know, you're filling up on all this stuff that just doesn't fill you up. And I think like it can make such a difference. So, you know, some when I was eating at maintenance and had higher calories, like 2,700, I'd enjoy like a piece of fudge and a cup of coffee with collagen, but that's not a really filling meal. So I swapped that then for Greek yogurt and fruit. So can you talk a bit more about that? Because I think that makes a huge difference too. 100%. Uh, we already kind of talked about eating out and the problem with estimating calories that uh, the, the food's just, they're full of oils and and uh, just more calories and they taste better and you see you overeat uh, and they underestimate the calories. When I'm trying to get a big athlete to gain weight, you know, a pro football player, a strong man or a bodybuilder or something, I'm giving them less processed foods. I'm giving them ground meats because they're easier to digest and eat. They have more surface area. You consume a lot of them faster. I blend that up with white rice, which is really easy to eat a lot of, and it digests really fast and you're hungry again soon. And I put in a little bone broth in there so that mechanically speaking, you just swallow pounds and pounds of food without choking yourself to death. I design these diets for them intentionally so they can eat a lot of food in a given sitting digest it quickly, and then eat again sooner. I do just the opposite with my weight loss clients. It's kind of the same foods, you know, in terms of the the micronutrient-dense, highly bioavailable uh, foods. But now instead, I would choose, say, a chicken or a steak, because now you got to cut it, chew it. It takes longer. It has a greater surface area. It takes longer to eat. takes longer to digest. There's some good evidence that suggests how long you take to eat or how many bites you chew. I can put up, pull up another study here. Uh, 
this one here is in, uh, uh, this was a solid high protein meal evokes stronger hunger suppression than liquefied meal. It was a little different study, but, but again, liquid calories, like you mentioned, orange juice as compared to oranges, liquid calories make a pretty significant difference. Uh, but even chewing, uh, like 30 chews as opposed to 10, and they actually tracked this in studies, the people who chewed 30 times instead of 10 times uh, were satiated faster and didn't eat as much food in that given meal. So it's a satiety uh, strategy. Eating more proteins is a satiety strategy. Eating whole foods as opposed to ultra-processed foods is a satiety strategy. Eating higher fiber diets is a satiety strategy. They also have what's called a satiety index. Uh, you mentioned boiled potatoes as well as oranges. If you look at a satiety index, the foods that tend to keep people the fullest longest are things like boiled potatoes and oranges that are at the top of the list, uh, along with high protein or high fiber foods. And so just by choosing what kinds of foods you eat, which is, this is where people start to go into war about this whole calories in, calories out thing. And they say that, you know, 100 calories of carrots isn't the same as 100 calories of cookies. Uh, well, calories is just a unit of measurement. And yes, it is. But its influence on the system is different. Mm. Obviously, the fiber is somewhat indigestible, so you don't net out as many calories. It's more satiating, so you're less likely to overconsume it. Um, and then you don't have the, the hormonal milieu of, uh, of triggering ghrelin and, and just being hungry all the time. So the difference isn't necessarily the calories. It's, the, it's how the food affects your propensity to eat more of it uh, and uh, just to be hungry or, or what your energy levels are like. So um, those are strategies. Like I, like I said, we don't have a lot of tools in our toolbox, but those are pretty effective. Um, uh, eating the, the meat, drinking a significant amount of fluids. And I know some people like to, I don't know, somebody recently claimed that this wasn't a thing, but I mean, there's, there's plenty of research. There's a satiety benefit to consuming more liquid, not just throughout the day, but pre-meal. Here's one in PubMed recently, effective water consumption on weight loss is systematic review. And it looked at a few different things. Uh, it looked at replacing, obviously, caloric drinks with non-caloric drinks, which is why, uh, you know, getting somebody to go from, say, Coke to Coke Zero is a big win because you're just reducing the number of calories they intake, particularly from liquids, which are easy to overconsume. I actually have a, a, an old business partner that has been flying down here about once a month to spend a few days with me. He travels a lot. And so we go to restaurants and eat and we go to fast food places and eat. We go to the airport and eat because I have to teach him what to pick. That's not going to put him over his calories. I have to educate him on, on yes, you can eat out because he never cooks at home. He's always on the road. And I had to show him which foods to choose off the menu and where the, some of the potential pitfalls were. And so we go out and eat. And one of the first things we do when we sit down is I order an iced tea and a Coke Zero or a, whatever your favorite diet soda is. Two, not just one. I order two large uh, drinks to drink and, and tell them not to bring me the bread. <laughs> and not because carbs are bad, because now you're starting you know, with the, the likelihood that you're just going to overconsume the meal. And we'll sit and drink that entire iced tea and entire Coke Zero. Oftentimes, we have to take a trip to the bathroom before our meal ever comes. <laughs> and it's really effective. We find that he's, he's eating significantly less calories. And of course, I instruct him to order foods off of the menu that are generally whole foods. Uh, you know, you want to stay away from the, the fettuccine Alfredo, which is like 2,300 calories at the Cheesecake Factory. 
And instead, you're going to have to opt for the chicken salad. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter is that you want to be effective. Uh, you go with a salmon salad or a chicken salad or a steak salad, you know, and you know how much I like red meat because of the, the zinc and the B12 and the iron for women in particular, especially those that are lifting or doing any kind of athletic endeavor. So I certainly don't, uh, you know, eliminate that. But uh, those are the strategies that I use uh, as far as satiety goes. Mm. And, and actually, Stan, I was going to say the, that sort of leads me into the next one, I think. Because, um, like, you know, like you, you talked about, you can lose weight eating 1800 calories in McDonald's, but that's obviously not going to be great for your health, probably like not optimal health. And, you know, you're very big advocate of the micronutrients too. And so are we. So, you know, and I always think a healthy body is going to build muscle and lose body fat more efficiently than a really unhealthy body. And, you know, a, a, a calorie deficit doesn't need to mean a nutrient deficit. And like some of the foods that we encourage our clients to include in their diet, I'm not saying only eat these things exclusively always all the time. You know, sometimes I like to have a Coke, you know, when I'm not in, in dieting, because obviously a Coke's just energy with no, you know, fiber or nutrients or anything. So it's sort of a smart choice. It's not going to keep me full, but you know, like we encourage our clients, liver, oysters, red meat, you know, eggs, um, yeah. fruit. Very nutrient dense. Yeah. All of those for dairy so that they're, you know, and, and all of our clients, like you need those nutrients to, you know, have a normal and healthy menstrual cycle for, you know, like it's just, I think maybe can you talk a bit more about that, about the food choices? And I think like we say to our clients, like, look, cause I think too, like you're going to stick to the diet that you enjoy too. Like some of our clients are like, look, I just fucking love peanut butter. So they'll have like a tablespoon of peanut butter every few days because they just enjoy it. They fit it in their macros. But the rest of the time they're eating, you know, they're not eating a jar of bloody peanut butter. But yeah, talk about the nutrients and the micronutrients. Yeah, very important, obviously, because, you know, you being in this industry and, and my having trained athletes for bodybuilding figure physique and bikini, they're kind of the worst of the dieting uh, population that's out there, the, the extremes, you started this whole conversation off with, so I think what was most important is that we're not trying to exclude too many things. We're not trying to demonize too many things. We're looking at healthy food patterns as opposed to looking at, at individual ingredients. And uh, not only are they healthy, but do they lead to uh, better satiety, more energy and long-term weight loss maintenance. Um, anybody, all of your audience, I'm sure, who's been to a guru diet person, you know, in the bodybuilding industry, which is the, the worst of the worst, has been told to eliminate a whole host of foods. They've been told to eliminate red meat, eliminate dairy, eliminate fruit, fruit. <laughs> eliminate the egg yolk, uh, eliminate salt. And you, you walk out of there with the same diet plan that all of the, the bikini girls get, and it's egg whites, chicken. tilapia, yeah, yeah boiled Green chicken breast. Nuts, yeah, a, seeds. A, a pound of broccoli, you know, three <laughs> almonds, uh, you know, and sodium restriction on top of all of that. And it's uh, and it manifests itself in a whole host of of problems that we I think talked about previously with the female triad in particular with that chronic calorie restriction, mm -hmm. uh, anemia, which is a low iron, uh, amenorrhea, cessation of the menstrual period, uh, calcium deficiency, you get bone mineral density loss. And I even had the, the, the misfortune of having to see um, athletes utilizing that in the early 90s when I was working with the track athletes at the University of Oregon. And what's interesting is some 20 years later or more, I think within the last few years, there was that big dust up at Nike 
about the track coach having starved his athletes. Yeah. And she ended up with a whole host of problems. I saw these things happening in the early 90s. I was working with track athletes. I was managing an apartment community and some of the track athletes were living there and they would be wearing, um, they'd be wearing braces on uh, you know, you know, walking casts and running in them because they had shin splints. Holy but they shit. wanted to compete. And so they kept running in shin splints with oh. shin splints in a leg cast. And that is almost, I mean, sure, there's some overtraining involved there, but most certainly it's a result of these over-restrictive diets and these conditions that I just walked through. So when you're dieting and you're in a calorie deficit, it becomes even more important to get the most nutrient-dense foods that you can because you don't have a lot of room to wiggle. You know, this whole, if it fits your macros thing does not apply in that regard because it doesn't fit your micros in most cases. Uh, you could barely get away with an 80, 20 on a, on a 1400 or 1600 calorie diet. You really don't have any room for an 80, 20. You, you, you need to be about a 95, five as far as highly nutrient dense foods. And so the ones I pick, the one, like we discussed red meat in particular is one of the highest nutrient, the highest in iron B12 and zinc, um, like six fold over chicken. Uh, that's not to say chicken's a bad food. There's plenty of nutrients in chicken. There's certainly a quality protein source, but you certainly would never eliminate red meat, particularly from in a calorie deficit on a woman who is active, lifting weights or doing sports. Not a chance. You know, it's just too high of an opportunity for anemia. I see it in high school kids. I was in Arizona last month working with a group of high school uh, softball players. And sure enough, a couple of the girls had anemia already overtraining, under eating, avoiding red meat, you know, the whole guru diet thing. Uh, same with the, uh, the egg yolk, the biotin for skin, hair and nails. You and I both know, and especially the women in the industry with the dry skin, the dry hair, couple that with hypothyroidism because they don't have sufficient iodine and that dry hair starts falling out in patches. And I mean, that there's nothing more depressing for women than that. And it, I think it's, it's shameful and almost criminal to, to not uh, be smart enough to, to caution them otherwise, and to provide at least uh, ample uh, nutrition to prevent that from happening because it's totally preventable. Mm. Um, also calcium, mm, uh, people avoid dairy un unnecessarily. Yeah. So they, they say things like, oh, 60% of the population have lactose intolerance. Yeah. A very small percent of the population is allergic and that's fine. You know, people who are allergic to something, there's a big difference between an intolerance and an allergy. If you're allergic to peanuts, don't eat them because you can get anaphylactic shock and die, right? Uh, and there's other foods that people tend to have a high allergy to. Shellfish is one, you know, it kind of depends. Mm -hmm. Even up celiac, you know, with gluten uh, problems. But that's a very small percentage of the population. If you're allergic to something, don't eat it, period. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as uh, an intolerance goes, that is dose dependent and individualistic. And if you haven't consumed dairy in a significant amount of time, you'll downregulate the lactase enzyme. Yeah, I think so you people have they don't realize, Dan, like that it's made in your intestinal walls. And I, and we find with a lot of women that we work with, it's just stress digestive system and stress. And once they lower the stress, you know, eat more broths, collagen, repair that damaged yeah. lining, stop pounding so much green vegetables, nuts and seeds. Yeah. And then they reintroduce it slowly they can tolerate again. Like I was diagnosed with lactose intolerance when I was 12. My mom took me to a naturopath. She made me eat soy milk, like almond milk, all this shit till I, till I met Emma, this nutritionist, you know, who's now my business partner, learned what I learned. And then I fixed my digestive tract. And now I 
pound the dairy all day long, you know, like eat four servings, four to five servings a dairy day. No issues. Yeah. And you hit it right on the head. You have to first possibly restrict and then gradually reintroduce uh, and titrate it over time. I was going to say that if you're going to reintroduce dairy to your diet, start with a low lactose dairy like yogurt, Greek yogurt. It's much lower in lactose than milk. Hard cheese Uh, is good. Cheese, yeah, cheddar cheese, almost lactose-free. And then use small amounts. Use like two ounces. Yeah. And then the next day, another two ounces. And then see how you respond. If you gradually increase that over time, your lactase enzyme will upregulate and you'll be able to handle a a certain amount. And I'm not saying that everybody has an unlimited ability to digest high lactose foods, but you can certainly... uh, Uh, work yourself into a position to where you can consume more than what you're consuming now. And the only reason I mentioned is because it is very nutrient dense, vitamin D um, and calcium and calcium isn't just important for the bones. Uh, You know, weight training is hugely important for the bones, protein, calcium, and lifting weights. You need the three. If you're going to have expect to have any impact on long-term bone mineral density and, and osteoporosis, you need all three of them together. You can't just eat more calcium and, you know, you certainly shouldn't supplement it because there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that could actually be counterproductive for cardiovascular disease. So Mm. eat it. It's also really important for uh, muscle contraction and for nursing is a calcium is important for. So I I absolutely include it in the diet. Uh, Omega threes is another thing that uh, can be hard to get from a, you know, a, a restrictive diet. And so you want to include some sort of fatty fish. Um, and to get your omega threes in the diet. And then of course the fruits and vegetables, probably more than anything for the fiber benefit, but also potassium. We talked about the, the amount of, uh, we mentioned potatoes, potatoes, this has twice the potassium as a banana. Uh, it's a very rich source of potassium as well as, uh, there's plenty of low sugar fruits. And I'm not saying that to demonize sugar. I'm saying that because they're not very rich in calories, but they're high in fiber and water and, and phytonutrients and, um, uh, those are things like berries, uh, strawberry, blackberry, blueberry, raspberry. Uh, those are all fruits that, uh, like a, a pound of strawberries is only 130 calories. I mean, an entire plastic tin of strawberries is, is not terribly calorie dense. It's, it's like 90% water, um, and then, uh, some fiber. So I, I include all of those things and people who are eating, at home, they're not eating out at uh, fast food restaurants, and they're not eating a lot of packaged foods, uh, aren't getting a lot of salt. And I'm not recommending people get a lot of salt, but I am suggesting you reintroduce it or you add it to your meals um, because uh, salt is also very important for nerve signaling. And uh, it can help with your energy levels, particularly when you're training. Mm. If you're an active individual and you're sweating daily, uh, you know, kind of the average is somewhere between three and a half and five grams a day of, uh, of salt. And if you're active, you might burn another two to five grams an hour. I, mean, I worked with CrossFit national champions, Camille LeBlanc and Ben Smith and Becca Voigt. Um, they would take a thousand milligrams of sodium before a long event. Mm. And shortly after that's 2000 milligrams. That sounds like a lot just because of the number but it's a half a teaspoon, one quarter before, one quarter after of, of salt. Because in a 40-minute uh, endurance CrossFit event, they're going to burn through uh, some of them more than that. Lane Johnson yeah, from yeah. Philadelphia Eagles burns through five grams of sodium an hour. We had him tested through the yeah. Institute 
with a patch. So I'm, I'm just saying a lot of people in, in the, in the dieting industry, bodybuilding, figure, physique, bikini, wellness, and this just goes on and on and on. It's like the LBGBTQ, ABCDEFG. <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> There's a class for everyone. But uh, in that community, uh, a lot of guru dieters tell people to cut out salt. And it, it, it's a terrible idea for somebody getting prepared for a show in particular because their work rate has gone up so high. And they just end up getting exhausted. And the weaker you get, it's, it's, it's almost a direct indicator of muscle loss mm. uh, or you will lose muscle because you can't provide sufficient stimulus to your body in a calorie deficit to, uh, uh, to, what do I say, stimulate it or to, mm. to make it want to hold on to the muscle. Mm. And that's one of the biggest problems with dieting is that as you get weaker or do less with your muscles, your muscles will shrink. Your body will use that muscle tissue preferentially over fat. Mm. Uh, to protect you from starvation <clears throat> and we're trying to hold on to that muscle. So particularly for competitors, don't do anything. Mark Bell, I said this kind of facetiously to, to, uh, you know, Alan Aragon uh, is a yeah. great mind in the, in the health nutrition industry, just came out with his book, um, uh, flexible dieting, fantastic book. But I said to Alan, I said, a uh, a brilliant philosopher once said, Strength is never a weakness, and weakness is never a strength. And then I said, okay, it was Mark Bell, but hey, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> but probably the smartest thing Mark Bell ever said, and I love Mark, he's my brother, but the smartest thing he ever said is, is strength is never a weakness, and weakness is never a strength. Mm -hmm. And I have a list of things. I have a rant that's called uh, things that make you weak. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the rant is, is that anything that makes you weak should be avoided. Because mm. that is your body breaking down muscle. And the muscle is the most important organ in the body. And I call it an organ. And I say it's the largest organ because it's about somewhere around 60% of your total body mass. Whereas people refer to the skin as being the largest organ, but it's only about 11% of your total body weight. Uh, so it, it's, it's just as we kind of kicked off here and continue to discuss uh, muscle is the thing that you want to be focused on the most, hence getting sufficient protein and lifting weights and not doing anything that could adversely affect that uh, throughout your diet, which could be trying to lose too much weight too quick. Yes. Um, not getting sufficient sleep and where your body yes. would burn more muscle than fat. Yep. You know, there's a whole host of things of bad actions that you can take to compromise muscle tissue. And so we're going to stay focused on fueling that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that kind of sums up my, my, my most important micronutrient list of the kinds of foods. And you mentioned some others that are very nutrient dense. Um, uh, and, I, and I think that those things should build a foundation of a diet mm -hmm. should be in everybody's diet. It's diverse. It's, you know, they're, they're very nutrient rich, easy to digest, highly bioavailable. It's important yes. to mention because yes. the difference between, <clears throat> you know, things like, a heme iron versus a non-heme iron. So kind of like red meat, it's heme iron. It's, it's mm. much more easy for your body to digest and utilize as opposed to a non-heme iron. Mm. Uh, we see the same thing with vitamin A from uh, carrots, from uh, creatinins, and, uh, as opposed to, you know, a source of vitamin A that's more easy to digest. You can live on. It, yes, liver, yeah. fantastic source. And so I, I, you have to be cautious about, there's a lot of uh, you know, vegetables, I think, are important, like you said, for gut microbiome diversity. And there's some pretty nutrient rich, you know, spinach uh, for potassium or kale if you can't tolerate the, um, the uh, 
oxalates, uh, although if you get sufficient calcium in your diet, it generally uh, binds to the oxalates. You don't have a problem with kidney stones, but um, kind of getting down into the weeds now. But again, uh, you know, you just want to have a good variety and you want to make sure that they provide good nutrient density. Uh, and all of the foods we just mentioned are um, nutrient dense whole foods that will provide good satiety benefit uh, and good energy. Mm. Um, that's awesome. I'm just looking at my list and I'm just conscious of the time. I've got like 12 minutes and I'm thinking that we covered most things, maybe just to finish off, because I feel like with a lot of women, this is, they struggle booze, the booze stand. Yeah. Right? I was I'm a gonna, big boozer <laughs> and I still like to drink. I just don't drink like I used to. So talk I about alcohol. <laughs> Look, I've got bad news. I got bad news. I'm sorry. Damn it. <laughs> because for, for many, many, many years, we believed from epidemiology, from mm. you know France and, and the uh, Mediterranean diet, that you could have a couple of drinks and it would actually improve your health. They were had created what was called a J-shaped curve that uh, beyond two drinks, you would start to see a decline in health and less than two drinks, you'd actually see a, uh, a decline in health. And so they <laughs> felt as though alcohol and they were trying to put that onto what resveratrol, I think is what mm. they were claiming that the red could, be a, yeah. Yeah, could be a contributor to health benefits. But in fact, the epidemiology has not held up. Now we have randomized controlled trial out of Australia and we have what's called Mandelian randomization, genetically predispositioned individuals who we can follow over time and see uh, kind of how their health responds to alcohol. And there's a whole host of problems. One, it's got seven calories per gram, which is obviously more calorie dense than carbs and, and protein. Uh, it reduces inhibition. So people tend to overeat as a result of, of consuming alcohol. It has a, a really significant impact on sleep. If you drink oh, at night. Massively. Same. If yep. I ever have, even and, if I have a few drinks, I still don't sleep well. Ever. Yeah. And yeah. people mistake the fact that they can get to sleep pretty easily. Like, oh, I fall yeah. right asleep. Oh, you wake up though. You wake up yeah. tired because you don't get REM or stage four restorative sleep. The most yeah. important part of sleep is important. Uh, now they have recently shown, and there's a, another study I'll pull up, there's association of habitual intake with risk of cardiovascular disease. Alcohol consumption or consumption at all levels was associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, that was a recent Mandelian randomization study that uh, is in the JAMA journal. And let's see if the, the title's here, if anybody wants to reference it. Association of Habitual Alcohol Intake with Risk of Cardiovascular Disease. This was in March 25th of 2022. Uh, and again, the sleep is probably a more important thing to me than it's than what one or two drinks or, you know, mm. here and there uh, as far as cardiovascular disease goes. So I think the risk is minimal at the lower end, mm. uh, which we have to we make claims like these, we got to, you know, is the risk meaningful uh, or is it substantial type two diabetes, tenfold hazard ratio, mm. slightly elevated LDL 1.4 hazard ratio. So there's a huge difference between what actual risks are. Uh, and a lot of these studies will give you these uh, risk ratios and, and they'll say things like, um, you know, it's got a relative risk of it'll increase your risk of cardiovascular disease by 25%. Mm. And what that means is that one out of a thousand people may have, uh, may get cardiovascular disease. And then if you drink alcohol, 1.25 people out of a thousand may get cardiovascular disease. That's a 25% increase. Now, 25% sounds pretty, 
you know, I, pretty, yeah. yeah, it's pretty onerous. You're, you're like, oh my God, I, 25%. Uh, but to find out that, you know, the actual risk is one out of a thousand versus 1.25 out of a thousand. I'm just using that as an example. It's yeah, not yeah, specific yeah. to the study, but uh, I, people use these relative risks to create fear to, you know, it's more attractive for their article and gets more clicks and reads and, you know, it's all yeah. hyped up. But I don't want people to be over-concerned themselves. I think the other problems are worse. I think that the calorie consumption, the reduced inhibition, yeah. uh, the sleep, sleep. Uh, problems, I think those things are a lot bigger problem to worry about. The only thing I mentioned about the, the health issues is just because I don't want people, <laughs> this is my son. Drop it in to stay how I. Yeah. My dad's Stan, his dad's Stan, and my son is Stan. We're not I love very it. creative in this family. Love- yeah. So Stan, just- Stan Jr. Stan. <laughs> we just keep passing it on. Um, you know, I think we covered most of everything else. I wanted to throw a couple of bonuses in here. Can I just quickly, uh, just quickly stand just on the alcohol? I think like a lot of the women that we work with and me too, like we used alcohol as a coping mechanism, drink every yeah. night. Also, I found when I under ate, when I was restricting, I craved low blood sugar. So I drink as soon as I started eating more, nourishing my body, I, that sort of craving went away. And I think you just have to ask yourself, like, again, I'm really open. I still drink. I just don't drink like I used to. Like I'll have a couple of drinks on a special yeah. occasion. I really enjoy it. And I just go to myself. I still try, I go to bed, I have more liver, I take some nice cinema, I take some aspirin, you know, because it depletes B vitamins. I try and eat a good meal when I have it. So I'm not, you know, like try to counteract. And I just enjoy it. And I accept that I'm going to have a shit sleep tonight, but I enjoyed it. Get up the next day, eat my normal breakfast. You know, don't like before I'd get shit faced and then I'd be down at New York slice pizza, consuming a whole (laughs) large pizza, (laughs) you know, like dog shit food. And I use it to cope. Whereas now I use it for enjoyment occasionally. Yeah. Have the glass of wine for lunch. Won't affect your sleep. It's yeah. perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Don't have a bottle. To, yeah. <laughs> have and again, that's the whole thing I hate about the intermittent fasting deal is that, that chrononutrition shows us that maybe skipping dinner is the better idea because you're more insulin sensitive in the morning and it has those extra benefits as far as ameliorating hunger and, and postprandial glycemia later in the day. Uh, but if you skip dinner, then, you know, how much fun are you with your family or friends? Oh my God. And so, I can't go to bed hungry. Like I can't sleep. Yeah. If I'm hungry. It's like, no. Yeah. And it's not, again, it's not meaningful enough. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It's not a strategy that no. like 99% of people are just overeating, you know, yeah, skipping yeah. dinner doesn't fix that problem necessarily. So uh, there are two other things I think we should toss in here. One of them is a yeah. really neat study on uh, a weighted vest. Uh, I can't remember who, conducted this study, but it was on the weightology uh, website. Mm. But what, what they did here is, is that apparently, and the study was in mice, but he's, he's been utilizing this technique in his, uh, in his clients, his competitive bikini and figure uh, group. Um, and apparently the body has sort of a scale, a, a rheostat of sorts. Uh, maybe the bones sense that you're losing weight and then they release hunger hormones, ghrelin, uh, and might increase your cravings. And so a way to combat that is to wear a weighted vest. And for every pound you lose, slip another pound into the weight of the vest. Mm. It's not about burning more calories while you're exercising. It's really only a benefit when you're up and walking around. But it, it, it may, as it's shown in the mouse studies, and as he's gotten some good anecdotal and testimonial feedback from his clients, it may help like some of these other strategies curb your appetite as you lose weight because your body isn't sending off this signal. Hey, weight loss, weight loss, warning, warning, you know, 
And so I thought it would be interesting just to mention that. Uh, and the other one, when all else fails, or maybe not even when all else fails, but as a very reasonable uh, intervention, we talked about having to get medication for Hashimoto's or even people who are hypogonadal might need testosterone therapy, which could you know, dramatically improve their mood and their body composition and, and the like. Uh, semaglutide is a GLP-1 agonist. It's a medication that was designed uh, to suppress appetite. And it's been proven uh, in multiple studies now, long-term studies, to offer a significant weight loss benefit simply because you don't crave food. It's, it's an appetite suppressant. And we've had a lot of clients use that now. Uh, and I get great feedback. It's just not hungry. They almost have to force themselves to eat, which because you and I both know that we want our clients to eat. We want them to eat sufficient protein in particular uh, because they just they don't crave and they don't binge and they don't overeat. Uh, and some people need that kind of intervention because at the end of the day, this is a psychological battle. You know, physiologically, in so much as the hunger hormones are released, and then uh, you know that becomes psychological. Uh, and willpower is not going to win the game. That's that's a dead end road. It's not because you're weak. Uh, I mean, you just there's no way you can compete with your body's all of these signals the downregulation of energy expenditure, the increase of hormones that cause you to be hungry, you know, all of the things we discussed today. Uh, you need all of these strategies that we, what we talked about, whole foods, meal prepping, higher protein intake, consuming more water before meals, potentially, uh, higher fiber intake, higher um, satiety foods. You know, our short list of tools in our toolbox, we need to use all of them. Uh, semaglutide might be uh, a reasonable intervention. It's not cheap. Even in the States here, it's like $500 a month or something, $350 a month to take semaglutide. It's pretty spendy, uh, but terribly effective. Shows twice as much weight loss long-term uh, as uh, just continuous calorie restriction. So, and ultimately yeah. even something like the gastric sleeve in extreme cases for people who are, uh, you know, obese to the point where type two diabetes uh, can potentially compromise their lifespan. Uh, those are options. I, I have family member uh, that has had to, has tried to lose weight repeatedly over the years, ultimately did the gastric sleeve, lost a significant amount of weight and is now much healthier as a result. It's not my go-to. I don't lead with it. Yeah. I was going to say, Sandy, would you say like always you want to try and address because you know like we get so many clients that have the gastric sleeve and even though they lose the weight they still haven't improved their habits like they you know like it doesn't actually redress the root cause and like taking the drug like with the women that come in and they eat more food they still like we've got a lady that's lost 46 kilos and she just sat on 1850 calories walked every day ate the nutrient dense food you know changed yeah. her behaviors and habits it's like yeah it, it gets the result but does it really solve the underlying no, it doesn't. Yeah. It has to be conjoined with a good counseling program, uh, mm. uh, you know, some sort of, of regular education. Um, and, and it's important to mention that you can reverse uh, the, the benefits from a gastric sleeve primarily if you drink your calories, like mm. something like a quarter or better of those fail over time or you the, the stomach expands and you gain the weight back. Uh, it's not a, a perfect cure. And there's lots of problems along the way with uh, potential uh, vitamin mineral deficiencies. Uh, it's a difficult, difficult process. It's also important to recognize and, and, and just briefly touch on the fact that it's not all about uh, 
hunger, uh, sometimes people eat out of boredom. Yeah, stress. They eat out of stress. They eat out of trauma. Yeah, trauma. And, yeah, it's huge for our women. Yeah. Yeah. There's a host of reasons. And they talk, discuss uh, that sometimes it may be beneficial to do, uh, to keep track of why you're eating. Uh, and then to you know, one of the strategies I didn't mention today, but it's kind of on my list here is to kind of eliminate, uh, those things from the house. If they're not within reach, you're less likely to consume them and then to replace them with low calorie snacks. Mm. I like, uh, Bill Tong. It's almost, I think it's a really low or sugar free jerky. Uh, it's like air dried instead of cured and brown sugar. Uh, because now you're getting protein and you're satiating and you're chewing and you're, you're taking care of some of those habitual behaviors. Mm. Um, uh, popcorn obviously is another one, low sugar fruits we discussed. You have to find snacks that, that you, that can help you during those times of boredom or habit with yeah. the, just the chewing and the, the process that don't yield as many calories and take some of the really highly high calorie dense, ultra processed, easy to overconsume foods kind of out of the house. doesn't mean you can't have an ice cream, like you said, but you should have to get in the car and drive there to get it. And it should yeah. be occasionally not, not in your freezer every night. You yeah, know, ice cream. Yeah. Like I've, I've eaten pretty much for like seven or eight years, homemade ice cream with banana, like or fruit every night, pretty much, you know, and I think yeah. like, and I just want to go back to the quickly before, cause I'm looking at the time. I've got like a few minutes left, but you know, like so many women in our program, like I've talked to over the last, they're like Corona stressed. So they ate yeah. and they drank, they ate yes. and they drank, they use it to numb the feelings. I did it for so long. And I think there's so many women, these underlying deeper issues that need to be addressed and trauma so that they can yeah. actually then be consistent with the approaches that we've talked about. And like, I think get help, get yeah. coaching. Like some, like a lot of women I've referred to, like we've got some EFT practitioners, this EFT tapping, which I've used, which I found so helpful and getting yeah. really vulnerable about why you're actually, you know, when you can move past it, you feel free and then you can be consistent, yeah. you know, like, so I think that's, there can be lots of deeper issues too. It's not just. And it may require some counseling. That's you right. You should certainly that's look right. at that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought we were going to blast through this in 30 minutes, but know. you know me better than that. I, I tend to be a bit long winded. I'm passionate about this. And, and I good. think we covered a lot of a lot of information today. So yeah. hopefully your, your your audience will get some benefit from it. Find something in there they can use. No, I think they will. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on again. And I'll put all of Stan's details um, in the show notes. Make sure you follow him. He's awesome. He's also how old are you, Stan? 54 now. Yes, you look good. You look good. Thank he you. Looks good. You Thank can't you. see him, but go follow him. He's like so jacked, so tan. You know, we interviewed, uh, you know, Brandon DeCruz. You know him. Oh, mate. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We interviewed yeah. him the other day. He's a good looking dude. I'm like, Stan, you're like him, but just in your 50s. You know, Stan's the old, <laughs> the old, like the George Clooney version of Brandon DeCruz. He was great, actually, to have on the podcast. I'm telling you, lifting weights is the fountain of youth. It sure. really is. Sure. I see guys in the gym that are in their seventies and they got a sperm handshake and they're wow. straight up as a board, you know, they're it. all bent over and I love <laughs> it. I, I just, I, I want to be that, you know, yeah, so yeah. I'm just going to keep lifting weights. I'm fortunate that I really enjoy it. I think people yeah. should endeavor to find a trainer that makes, that helps them to enjoy the experience because yeah. a lot of people get to the gym and they do things that, that they probably don't enjoy. And the, the likelihood they'll do it long-term is slim to none. So Find a good coach who can help you uh, help you navigate that, such that you enjoy it. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. But look, ladies, it's empowering. I've never met a woman who's gotten strong and said, "Oh, Kitty, I just hate it." It's terrible. It's it's oh, the best feeling in the in the whole entire. And I'm right there with you. I want to be like 80 and still deadlifting. You know, still uh, bang out squats. So thank you again, Stan. Um, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.